0: You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thanks for joining me once again. A few weeks ago, I got together with my friend Jeff, who I met in a bipolar support group local to my area, and we recorded another installment for the podcast. Jeff had originally appeared on Bipolar Recorder in episode three, where he spoke about his wild experiences with mania and psychosis. Now at the age of 40, Jeff has lived with Bipolar Type 1 for about 20 years. Despite the challenges of living with bipolar, he has built a successful career in the tech industry. He has designed and managed apps for millions of users and is a named inventor on three different patents. He recently left Big Tech to build his new neurodiversity advocacy project called Bipolarist. This episode covers a lot of ground, but particularly emphasizes ending social stigma surrounding bipolar disorder in the workplace, as well as the challenges of obtaining disability accommodations and to Jeff's ideas about incorporating new technology to improve access to mental health resources and research strategies. It was a great conversation. I think you'll all find it really informative. Let's go ahead and get started.
1: All right, Jeff, welcome back. How have you been? You were featured in episode three of the show, one of the most popular episodes we've recorded, actually.
2: Really? yes it is it's
1: one (laughs) of the uh highest ranked actually so um yeah so uh jeff would you mind introducing yourself again for people who aren't caught up on the show and uh, this is the first time
2: meeting you yeah definitely so um my name is jeff brown i go by bipolarist online uh on twitter spaces you can go to bipolarist.com to look at some of the work I'm doing in this space, uh, I'm a, a tech guy who's been out as bipolar since I was 21. Um, I've got, uh, um, yeah, I've worked in tech for about 15 years, and sounds like I'm making my transition into full-time advocacy now. So wow. really excited about that. What's uh, spurring that transition? <laughs> Uh, well, I recently sent my, uh, my farewell email, uh, by recently, I mean, a couple hours ago to my employer and, uh, you know, everyone that I got to, got the chance to work with there. Um, I was working at a, at a large, um, healthcare company and it was interesting. I had the chance to come in, sort of come into the belly of the beast, um, and see what it's all like, uh, from the inside. So, Uh, That was really interesting for me. Uh, I was working in an incubator, uh, basically building something that uh, could help people like us. And I got to learn about the way that they see uh, the problem space from the inside, really enlightening for me. Uh, Hmm. But, you know, definitely a valuable experience.
1: So when you said the belly of the beast and you were working on things meant to help neurodivergent people, could you be a little more specific about that? Like what, what was the kind of work you were doing? Can you talk about it at all?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I've already been, <clears throat> I've, I I can talk about what I worked on because it's already been public. Okay. Uh, so you can check out my LinkedIn if you, if you want to see more about the work that I do and the in tech uh, you can find it by going to appstrategist.com uh, just click the link there i go by professionally i go by app strategist right and then uh uh, uh i don't know how you say it maniacally i guess maniacally i go by bipolarist <laughs> i call it uh by night you go by bipolarist by night i go by bipolarist that's right yeah um you're really
1: laying it all on the table right now. You're like, this is who I am professionally. This is who I am career wise. And this is the advocacy work that I do. And like, I don't give a fuck who knows, like, this is who I am.
2: I mean, it's important for, uh, for someone to be able to, to live in both worlds, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I, just, I've been thinking a lot about mental health and specifically about mental health, uh, the stigma of mental illness, And I think a lot of stigma, it really is shame and shame requires secrecy. So the more we talk about things, you hear people say a lot, the more we talk about things, the faster we can reduce stigma, uh, et cetera. But I think really what ultimately we need to do is stop feeling ashamed of feeling different and allowing ourselves the graces not to be perfect. Uh, And I think, so I think that the, the idea that I keep, I keep the secrets about how people have treated me uh, in the workplace and elsewhere is a way for me to shame myself because I don't need to hold on to that pain. It's more important that um, we talk about our pain so we can heal. And in the case of being, uh, you know, uh, uh, excluded on the basis of uh, um, a disability, I feel like that's not because, like, I, I feel like I was excluded, or I, when I when I am excluded due to, due to my condition, it's because of the stigma, not necessarily because of my behavior. And that's where, um, that's kind of where I draw the line. So, yeah, I, I'm tired of suffering from stigma, right?
1: Yeah, you're, you would rather let those secrets be known, have it not be a taboo part of the conversation.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just not, um, it's, it's not healthy to keep secrets, especially if you're keeping them for other people who are hurting you.
1: Yeah. So what, what led up to this, this moment over the last few months in terms of going through different avenues? I know you sought out disability accommodations for a while. Um, how did that play out? And ultimately, why, why? Did it end up not being an option?
2: Yeah, um, it's a great question, and I think a lot of people face this when they go through. um, Like this is a problem that a lot of people face, and they face it in silence, and they face it alone. And that's applying or requesting an accommodation uh, for your disabilities at work uh, or at school. In the case, in my case, this is at work, and it's something that I've done before. Uh, I was able to get some accommodations at a previous Fortune 100 employer that I worked at, they were um, they were reluctant, you know, but I was persistent and they were needed. So I got some things, uh, but when I transitioned into this role, uh, I was surprised to hear I wasn't able to get any accommodations. Hmm. That was really interesting to me. Uh, I was a full-time employee. I should have been eligible for the benefits and I was denied every accommodation I requested.
1: What kind of accommodations were you requesting?
2: Uh, one of them was like the ability to work remotely. Okay. So, you know, I never went to the office, so I was working remotely the whole time I was there. But for me to request the ability to work remotely as an accommodation was not allowed.
1: Like suddenly there's like an issue with the
2: Right. Oh, yeah. You want to work remotely. We can't allow you to do that. We can't allow you to be uh, um, in the comfort of your home where you feel safe so that you can be productive. Um, you know, when you are having a mood disturbance or when you know that interpersonally you're not going to be your best and it's better to focus on heads down work out of sight. Um, you know, that's the kind of accommodation I was seeking. And uh, it really left me wondering uh, if that's even okay. So, you know, lessons learned about um, uh, how to apply for these benefits. We can get into that more. But ultimately, mm-hmm. in this case, uh, I was not able to get accommodations at this employer, and that was uh, uh, one of the one of the final straws for me. How long had you been trying to get accommodations
1: for in total?
2: actually a month after I started uh, up until the last, my last month in the office. So, and I was there for just under a year. So so first and 11th, my second month and the 11th month.
1: Okay. So like 10 months. Right. (laughs) I'm too high for this shit, man. (laughs) I can't do math right
2: now or ever. Are we both a lit tonight or is it, so, yeah, you know, I had, I had this, uh, this, this question, this, this um, uh, moment of crisis, it, was I going to hit the pen tonight or not? And I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't done it since January, but I was like, you know what, like, I need to be somewhere else right now, you know, I need to like celebrate and but I didn't want to go out, outside. Okay, yeah. you know, <laughs> so I'd rather just stay home and like, Use my creative energy because I've been really on fire for the last couple of weeks, and yeah. uh, and channel it into something productive. So this is a perfect outlet for me. That's
1: awesome, man. Um, I'm I'm glad to hear that it's a perfect outlet for you. And yeah. not to detract too much from uh, what you were saying, but uh, yeah, so it it had been a ten month process for trying to get these accommodations, and just no progress was being made at the end of the day
2: uh no it was flat out denied um yeah i was just astonished you know i re-requested the accommodations the 11th month and they were told "Oh, but you already requested these i was like yeah but i'm submitting new documentation and they were like not having it and that's the insurance company right because you have to get your when you submit uh, for accommodations usually a company uh, especially if they have a lot of employees, they have like, you know, like a more sophisticated HR department. Um, an insurance company handles the certification of your medical disability. Uh, so if you want to request an accommodation, the first hurdle that you have to pass is getting enough documentation from your um, doctors to, con- to, or getting a doctor that treats you to say that you have a disability. You don't have to disclose your condition. Um, but the doctor has to basically authorize like a, you, you.
1: Write know? a note of some kind, like yeah. an official official letterhead or whatever. That
2: Yeah, and here's what's interesting about that. I didn't get a letter from my leg doctor. Mm. So it's not like they're going to not know what kind of doctor I was seeing. Mm-hmm. So, so they're still going to know what kind of treatment I'm getting. Yeah, yeah. So we have to think about like, what are we disclosing? And it's a perfect example. I used to work on identity um, of like giving away as little identifying information as possible. Uh, there's, a, there's an app called Yodi um, where you can use it to prove your age when you're getting into a bar. Uh, okay. most, most clubs won't accept it, but there are a lot of these examples where you like, you don't just, because you don't want to give an ID that has your address on it to a bouncer necessarily. If you're uh, you know, a nice young lady. So if you if you can avoid it, you want to give just the minimum amount of information. Uh, in my case here with the request for accommodations, uh, my neuropsychiatrist was the person who applied my original documentation. It was sent in my original documentation, so they know very well, even if I hadn't disclosed it at work, um, what kind of specialist I'm seeing. Which I wonder what an insurance company does with that. You know, like
1: so, like on this. Uh form that your doctor provided it said like doctor so-and-so and and then like psychiatric service llc or whatever the fuck on it yeah exactly just so yeah okay i see what you're saying yeah so they they know what's up they're like oh clearly this is something mental health related
2: right right and then some of the disability um and like i know that like, I wasn't able to get accommodations, but I was able to qualify for their short-term disability plan and FMLA, which, thank goodness, uh, I am grateful for that. Um, but the disability plans have different clauses that affect mental health uh, versus physical health. They treat them differently, which is astonishing. Because mm-hmm. there's supposed to be parity between mental health and physical health. That was a law a law that Obama passed. It was like, I think it was called Mental Health Parity Act or something like that. Okay. Uh, because what was happening was people were like, com- insurance companies were treating um, mental health and covering it less, like for less, less providing less coverage in the case of a behavioral health issue versus a case of, um, you know, physical health
1: mm-hmm.
2: and denying claims. They were like basically, they, I think some companies were even like insuring only non behavioral health issues because they were thinking about all oh, this is like your fault. That's what
1: it's
2: truly. So, Obama passed a, uh, a law that created, men- it's supposed to create mental health parity. But when it comes to disability programs and disability insurance, private disability insurance, that is, they can apparently discriminate uh, on your claim um, basically by offering different terms. So, it's, it's not, it's separate but unequal. You know, had mm-hmm. I gone out from my previous employer with uh, um, had I become like a quadriplegic on the job or like lost a limb or whatever. And I went out on disability and uh, that would cover me for, uh, for for life. If my job function was like, you know, something that required an extra leg, it could yeah. potentially cover me for life or, you know, all of a sudden I develop, develop Parkinson's or something like this. Um, but then the clause that I was put under because I have bipolar disorder uh, from this previous employer um, said that for mental health conditions, the uh, period of coverage was two years. It was two years. And it's like, so what's the difference? I have a permanent psychiatric disability. Permanent. Mm-hmm. It's like losing a leg
1: wait so your insurance plan only provided up to two years of mental health coverage
2: that's right so there's not parity that's insane right so here's the here's the clause um the program that you that you're put under with this this insurance plan uh, is specific to the kind of condition that disabled you And the, basically like a clause of the contract, that's where you're, how you qualify is through the mental health clause or the behavioral health clause. Um, and the clause, that clause specifies that those claims can last 10, two years. I think it's before having to have an independent medical review. So I passed the medical review. So I was allowed to continue past two years. Okay. But you could fail the medical review if their doctor certifies you as able to work and then have to come back to work or negotiate a severance with your company. Mm. And the other thing is like, by that point, after you've surpassed three months of FMLA coverage, your company can let you go. You know, yeah. they, don't, they don't have to save your job. So you can be on disability, use it, get well and not have a job when you come back. Right. Yeah. That, ha- that happened to me in a former employer too. I tried to come back and they were like nope your job's been eliminated
1: after you've been out on short-term disability for a while
2: mm-hmm.
1: wow so you just you had that benefit coming in and then once you were actually well enough to return they they terminated you at that point exactly that is so
2: strange exactly huh so i went to the eeoc i had a pretty robust case uh and the EEOC told me.
1: Equal. I'm sorry. Equal, equal employment, employment Opportunity Commission.
2: That's right. Yeah. In the United States, we have a, like a, a task, like a department that overlooks uh, labor issues uh, to prevent discrimination. So I submitted a, a claim to them and they, um, they assessed the case and said, uh, they literally asked me, what would you like us to do? I was like, is this not automatic at this point? Like, what? (laughs) Can can you just do your job or do I have to tell you how to do it? You know? So, um, and then they said, they they implied like very uh, finessly, uh, you should just take the severance package because Mm -hmm. if we go through all this, you're not going to get more than you would get, than you've been offered for your severance. Unless you file a suit and then you have, and all the money to litigate it, which Mm. I don't, which I didn't. So So, you just took the severance. You were like, mm -hmm. yeah, it it was generous. You know, it was, uh, uh, it wasn't the glory that I wanted to win a case against them and, you know, in court, Mm -hmm. but it was generous and it had a benefit for me to get additional training, uh, which I appreciated. Uh, and it covered me for I think three months. Okay. Um, so a three month salary, uh, or like in a lump sum check, which I thought was nice. So that's cool. Can't, can't complain. No severance from this job, <laughs> uh, which I actually tried to pre-negotiate. Some of the career sites will t- will tell you pre-negotiate your severance package uh, before you sign the paperwork.
1: Wait, 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 wait. So this everything we were just talking about was the employer prior to the one you left today.
2: It was one of my previous employers.
1: One of your previous employers. Okay. Yeah. So that time it it was like, you were like, okay, this is a generous payout. I'm cool with this. But this time around, not
2: so much the case. Not so much the case. I don't feel, I feel tepid with this, you know, maybe tepid or lukewarm with this. Okay. Uh, I I don't feel cool with it at all. So yeah, um, that's the case. How's your world, man?
1: My world is all right. Um, it's it's um, going. I got a promotion at work, actually, quite recently. So I, I got a little bonus. I got a nice little pay raise. Uh, I'm doing well in terms of the corporate day job bullshit. I actually just recently... Um, learned that my position can be 100% remote officially. So now I no longer have to live in this very, very expensive area. Uh, So I feel very liberated right now. And like, I have a lot of options and opportunities in front of me and I'm kind of trying to figure out where to start there. I'm trying to find a house so I can set up a proper recording studio in it and everything. So
2: yeah it, making moves hunters making moves I, i'm
1: trying to i'm trying to i've lived in northern virginia pretty much my entire life mm-hmm. and i'm just over it i've been over it for so long um okay. and i i need a change uh i just recently went out to shenandoah national park for a few days and was just like out there chilling on vacation
2: mm-hmm. and
1: i realized how much that lower stress, lower stimulation environment was really helping like my vibes, my, my energy, it was rejuvenating in a sense. And then I came back to, you know, where I live in this big apartment complex next to this big, busy street and everything. And I was just like, God damn it. So
2: feel it again. Right feel the stress
1: I I feel the stress I I, I'm just trying to find a place where I can settle down for a while so it's a it's a lot going on but mentally I'm feeling stable I'm feeling with it I'm on an extremely low dose of medication now like oh really congratulations thanks yeah I'm on like pretty much like I I'm surprised how much this doctor has let me go down off of it, and I've been feeling really good as a result.
2: That's great, man. And so the side effects me. must have been pretty bad for you.
1: It's not well. It was all about reducing side effects for sure. Um, the side effects weren't unbearable, but I was all about just improving my quality of life. You know why have it at fifty percent when you can have it at ninety percent or maybe mm-hmm. even a hundred percent someday. So we went through this lengthy process over the last, uh, you know, six to eight months of producing my medications and I I've been feeling stable still, you know, not feeling hypomanic, not feeling manic, just living
2: my life. That's great. Have you, have you done any like exposure experiments? You know, like, like what have you traveled yet? Uh, aside from
1: that trip out to Shenandoah national park no i haven't traveled since covid happened last if place you're... i was at was los angeles and i flew back from there in february of
2: 2020 okay um uh, because well do you have um like are your psych, is your your mood fluctuations are very, are they very cyclical
1: they're not no they they don't seem to have a rhyme or reason to them they kind of come out of nowhere Mm -hmm. um I'm not one of those people who tends to always be manic during the spring months or always be depressed during the winter months it's very it's unpredictable for me and luckily my episodes are few and far between these days Mm -hmm. um I, I used to think that the seasons and stuff had a lot to do with it, but for me personally, I think it's disconnected from that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. It's like, I I, I almost feel like there's multiple, it's like my mood is gyroscopic or something, you know, or like there's there's multiple dimensions of multiple cycles happening at the same time. Hmm. That's like, it's exhausting when, I, when I'm aware of it. Usually it's not an issue because my mind's pretty stable. And my mood has been really stable. Um, like within a threshold, you know, mm-hmm. it's been, so it's like, it's very difficult to pinpoint what is the disturbance if there's anything, you know, what I'm sensitive to. It's always been, you know, it's uh, very much like a no rhyme or reason and depressed in the winter and up in the spring and, and uh, usually in the spring.
1: It yeah. sounds chaotic
2: yeah it can be it can be um uh, but it's also like if the effect of the of the cycles is numbed you know like reduced or mitigated uh it can be interesting mm-hmm. you know, it can be interesting and it can be it's almost like if you were um i think of it sometimes like if a, ro- a roller coaster hear me out you know how if you are like climbing uh the hill on a roller coaster and mm-hmm. you get to the crest, you can see like in the far in the distance, right? You can see for a long way. So you see the whole theme park the, outside the city and the highways or whatever. And um, then when you come back down the hill, your perspective is a lot more shallow. You can't see for as far because you're seeing the immediate trees or the rest of the equipment or other rides or you know, whatever. Um, I feel like coming, getting manic and rising the hill of mood, getting hypomanic and seeing from a, from the perch of, Mm. uh, of my mind and creative process is like a, is a gift sometimes. Yeah. And if I were just to live at that, that level of awareness or like, um, you know, vision or whatever you want to call it, I'm not sure if I could handle it.
1: It's almost like in some ways hypomania or almost like that sub hypomania level. It potentiates your clarity of creative vision, I think. I mean, I've been working on a new album lately. I've been you know, playing a ton of music, recording a ton of music. I've been in a very, very creative headspace. But I don't feel hypomanic. I feel like myself. And I feel like that's because I've been on less medication and I'm just feeling more and more like the authentic me these days. Like I recognize, oh, like you're doing this because you're passionate about it, not because you're in a state of hypomania right now. Like things are still under control. You're still going to your job. You're still like paying your bills and taking care of shit. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. That was the assessment I've been making this week is like I could see that I was hypomanic, but the threshold that I didn't want to cross is the impulsive the impulsive and reckless threshold. Seeking novelty or the sensation of novelty through marijuana is acceptable. You know, stimulating that novelty part of the part of the brain, novelty seeking part of the brain is acceptable. Um, but what's dangerous is seeking adrenaline and behaviors that put me or my financial you know, stability at risk, physical or financial stability at risk. Mm-hmm. So I'm keeping an eye on the mania or hypomania just to make sure that it doesn't dip that far. Um, I feel like I'm being a responsible hypomanic. <laughs>
1: responsible hypomanic is a good way to put it. I think. Yeah, I hear you. Um, How will you know if it is getting beyond the threshold?
2: Mm. When I when I'm in a fluctuation, and I become aware of it, sometimes I'm more aware of it with uh, hypomania and mania than I am with depression. I don't often know that I'm depressed. Yeah,
1: I find that too. I've experienced that as well.
2: Yeah, it's like, um, you know, your cognition is delayed or just reduced or whatever, muted. So that makes sense, I guess. But um, but that's what happened to me last fall when I went out on disability too. It was like, I was slowing down and that's cyclical, you know, it's cyclical to slow down like that for me. Like it's seasonal, right? That's where I'm like, okay, so you're telling me <laughs> That my seasonal uh, dip in mood, which always happens, is a medical condition. Right. That's not, that's the aspect of bipolar disorder that I think is neurodivergence. Okay. Because even if you're medicating it, you're still responding to the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in tune with something that other people are not. Mm. That's a skill, that's an ability. Yeah your body does something that other people's doesn't in re, in response to the, the sun. I mean, how awful is that? It's terrible. That's supposed to be pathologized, you know? So that's where I feel like bipolar intersects with neurodiversity. Cause you know, some people draw a line between, uh, um, what, what they describe as like epigenetic conditions or like, um, you know, uh, a, a, accumulated, or I forget the term, um, conditions versus something it's genetic or that you were born with it's you know something like autism has a certain uh, uh place in the neurodiversity spectrum uh or Tourette's um, or dyslexia which is different than the, that of bipolar disorder for example so or a traumatic brain injury for example right so some people draw a line there I think the line uh, needs to be redrawn. That's my, that's my point. Mm
1: -hmm. You think that the neurotypical population is not so typical?
2: Oh, maybe. Yeah. I think there's a lot more diversity, you know, in neurology than there is probably going to be like, well, it also depends on what the denominator is. Right. Um, The range of, Here's what I really think about neurodiversity. I feel like the brain is a lot and our neurology is a lot more dynamic than we have the ability to interpret today. And I actually think that these conditions that, like bipolar disorder or ADHD, um, I think you can see the same activity in someone's neurology. I, I suspect, right? I'm speculating that you can see the same activity uh, in someone's neurology that isn't diagnosed or hasn't been like stigmatized with these conditions uh, or has found a way to cope with them you know, with the, with that, those those responses or that neural activity or whatever. Um, different bodies can handle it differently. So uh, I feel like sometimes we get diagnosed with some of these conditions or people point out behavior is unacceptable socially, uh, but everyone experiences it. You know, what we're seeing as behavior is a manifestation of someone's internal sensation, like what they're feeling, you know, or like their, their, their internal state is creating their external state. Right. hmm We are all creating our external state through subconscious and conscious mechanisms, you know, what really related to our consciousness, you know, right. So then therefore. (laughs) Okay. I'm sort of on board. All right. So, (laughs) um, but, uh, but yeah, those same internal states and people that have, um, you know, these, these palpable differences Uh, like the get pathologized conditions um, cause some people real pain and are disabling for some. So I think it's going to be interesting as we learn to measure our like pain threshold or our pain signal, you know, pain signal and consciousness signal, uh, all those things vary per person. So it's going to be interesting to see all that stuff start to, you know, be displayed visually or phonically or uh, sorry, sonically or, something that communicates like um that, that captures uh how different we all are and how differently we react to the same stimulus
1: okay so That's different yeah. different metrics being put in place
2: new metrics new, new, metrics. Me- new, methods. I mean, new methods there's got to be new methods from for measuring consciousness and uh, and pain you know like the self-reported or subjective measure of pain you're at the hospital and they've got a, you know, a drip in your arm and they tell you, you can push a button if you're having severe pain to get some painkiller, or if it's um, that's, if it's really bad, you have cancer or tumor or things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are on a dose of painkiller, that's not in an IV, they'll come around and give your meds like once a night or whatever, you know, or twice a day. Um, but that's a subjective indication they're giving you the medication based on how badly you're telling them it hurts, or you're giving yourself the medication based on how much pain you're experiencing. But there's no quantitative that I know of anyway, method for measuring pain. Mm -hmm. And right now we're still figuring out how to map consciousness. And in theory, like all those things are frequencies and vibration, right? Consciousness. I mean, any signal in the body could be like sobriety, like all the, all those metrics that they measure when you go to a, for a checkup and compare that to, you know, external stimuli that can be measured with, with microphones or, or lights or whatever. And you can, you compare all those things. We're going to be able to like visualize someone's life force, you know, on a screen in a different way than we can right now.
1: Very trippy, very trippy indeed. So it's kind of interesting to think about what you're saying with there's like pain is subjective. There's no way of empirically quantifying it. You're telling people and then you're self-reporting this totally subjective information to a scientist, to a doctor who's then making a determination scientifically using quantitative methodology to prescribe a
2: medication back to you. Isn't that how it works? I, mean, I could be wrong. That's, I think that's how it works. I think that's how it works, right? It's not like they have like a, 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 you know, they poke you and they ask you, does it hurt? What's their pain number? One through 10. They don't like put like a, a you know, a fucking like sensor and go around <laughs> your your body to see where it hurts, you know? It's not you how know? it works. So I don't, Maybe maybe they can start to measure like your, uh, your neurotransmitters, like whatever the thing, like how much adrenaline you have might make, might indicate like how badly you're, you're uh, how much, how anxious you are. Right. Right. Well, in order to do that, we have to establish how much adrenaline you have at your body at a baseline. And those are the types of things that we don't have in medicine. You know, is that sort of preventive medicine, um, those metrics, those baseline metrics. I, I joined forward. It's a preventive health clinic where they, um, they do all sorts of, you know, measurements. They're promoting a lot of podcasts, actually. Um, I'm not getting paid for this mention. <laughs> should be. Uh, but yeah, you can go get your labs taken whenever you want to. You can see a doctor and talk to your physical, uh, your general practitioner um, through this app. You can talk to nurses like through this app, uh, which a lot of insurance companies have. But this is like a, a more forward progressive thinking clinic um hmm. it's like a subscription basis so you can talk to them you can go visit every them whatever you want to interesting it's kind of like a prepaid legal service but it's like prepaid medical service okay so um but those people they've gathered like they've done my uh did did a 23 and me for me and then they explained all the things that 23 and me documents uh and how and like you know what the, the likelihood of me having a particular um debilitating condition or medical condition might be um, and how that may interact with my current uh, portfolio, right? So that was interesting. Um, But I think like the more people get into like preventive health and uh, we used to call it the quantified self um, and gathering their own data and working with their providers to measure that data. Uh, the better we're going to know when there's a, there's a difference, you know, when something happens, we can compare all that data uh, to what we're what we're seeing now. And I don't think we have a lot of that kind of thing recorded, or a lot of people get that, you know, have that baseline data recorded anywhere.
1: Right. So, what are the next steps looking like for you? right now you've got this bipolarist project that you're working on I know you're working on an app of some kind yeah uh, what what kind of cool projects do you have coming up
2: yeah I was um think like, that's a good question so I've I'm trying to transition more into this this advocacy advocacy and activist uh role um I think that my competency is in is in apps, you know, and and tech and uh in innovation. And that's what I'm used to is like using it creating a tool or a button, basically, if you reduce what an app is down to it's a button, uh, a digital button. It does something. Um I want to create a digital, I want to create digital buttons that that uh heal mental health stigma. <laughs> I, I think that software has a, a, a lot of uh, opportunities for us. Um, and so advocating online, I'm a, I'm a certified digital peer support specialist. Um, you know, I've got an app in development I call Peer Care and um, continuing to work on that. Uh, I did find out about some grants that I may be eligible for come the end of the year uh, for um, to to raise non-dilutive funding for, uh, for Peer Care and some other projects that I have. Uh, so I'm going to work with the SBA and uh, and check out Grants.gov to see what kind of uh, funding I might be able to secure um, because I have some other ideas too for the for adaptive technology that I want to explore. Uh, but peer care is more of um, it's more of that advocacy side of things and uh, maybe suicide prevention it could it could contribute to. Um, more than anything, I think, is measuring outcomes in mental health. And that's something that seems to be difficult for the existing health, healthcare systems to capture mm-hmm. is outcomes. They don't know what happens after you leave the hospital. Right. No one knows. Yeah. So you got you got hospitalized or you checked yourself in. We got you stable. Um, you know, you changed your meds. You left. That's all they know.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like how a credit card company doesn't know what you bought yeah they just know that you shop somewhere because they don't get an itemized receipt on the transaction so it's like a, there's blindness so in order to close that loop new systems have to be created um, those might be services they could be buttons um, you know it could be it take any take many forms but I think that's an interesting place to explore right now in mental health
1: Taking it into that digital realm,
2: into the metaverse. And capturing outcomes, yeah.
1: Capturing outcomes is really interesting. It's funny. It's like, I don't know about you, but anytime I've decided to stop seeing a psychiatrist, I've just straight up stopped seeing them. I've just never scheduled another appointment and never followed up with them ever again. Savage. Never, never have they ever called me to check in and be like, "Hey, um, are you cool? Why why did you stop suddenly showing up one day?" And I think survey, there was no satisfaction survey. There, I <laughs> I just fucking, I just dip. Um, but it, I know it's an ethical thing. You know, there's ethical boundaries that they have, so they're they're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to reach out to people in that way. But it is funny to me that for all they know you either could be doing great or you could have fucking died yeah and they just don't know
2: they don't know i don't know how you live with that mystery you know it's crazy you know what they should have they sh- this should be like consciousness retargeting retargeting ads okay you know, like or like fair ther- therapy retargeting ads basically like if you well if you're all right. An example of retargeting is when you go, um, when you view a, 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 you you go to some website to buy a T-shirt, and then you find out that, uh, you, you know later on you don't buy the T-shirt, and then later on you go to another website and you start seeing ads ads for that T-shirt,
0: mm-hmm. you know, that
2: product. So that's an example of retargeting on the, uh, on the Google Display Network. Oh, any uh, any property, any website or app that has a Google Analytics code on it um, captures um, your IP address and your browser fingerprint. Um, and then anytime they see it show up again on anywhere else on the Google analytics network, you know, some other website, they send that to that fingerprint and IP address to the, um, display network. And then you'll see a, a an advertisement based on your previous browsing history. Okay. That's retargeting. Um, so imagine if you had like your your uh, um, your better self or your like therapist or your parents if you're a kid, uh, whispering in your ear and then being able to retarget that message as you continue to spend time throughout your day online.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You're like, oh, don't forget to do your homework. You know, <sighs> did you take the meds? And
1: the, it's just coming out at you throughout the day. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. Sounds That's like a good. nightmare. It could be pretty crazy. It could be pretty, uh, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) that could get dark. That could get weird.
2: Yeah. That could get weird really quickly in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
2: Yeah, I was thinking earlier about a a type of computer virus. Turns out it's been patented already. Okay. Um, But imagine if you could create a virus that would take over the computer screen and then just start flashing uh intensity like brightness and colors brightness and colors brightness and colors, brightness and colors to see if it can create a seizure because in some people it's going to make them have a seizure
1: interesting
2: okay right yeah that's a that's a basically like a neurological weapon isn't it
1: i i guess so that's like is that a bio weapon technically
2: is that like bio digital is that have bio i, have digital. I here of of like Defense, cyber, cyber bio, cyber bio, cyborg, bio,
1: cyber. bio cyber. Shit, that's fucking crazy. <laughs>
2: bio cyber warfare.
1: Oh my God. Well, we're coming up on about an hour, man. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you would like to report about? Words Dude. of wisdom, anything, anything about yourself, anything
2: you're looking forward to? There is, there is, uh, as I say on my website at bipolarist.com, uh, there is no pill for bipolar stigma. There is no pill for bipolar bipolar stigma. You know, I've taken all the medicine. I haven't seen one yet. So we've mm-hmm. got to do something about that problem because uh it's what gets people to the depths they get to that they take their lives by
1: mm-hmm.
2: decisions. So um we've got to figure this out.
1: Absolutely.
2: Follow me at Bipolarist.com or The Bipolarist on Twitter, Bipolarist on Facebook, The Bipolarist on Instagram and Bipolarist.com. And I look forward to talking to you guys another time. Thanks, Hunter, for letting me on the show.
1: Absolutely. And we will add all of that in the episode description as well. So people can check it out that way if they would like. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on.
2: See you. Thanks. All
0: I hope you found this episode as enlightening as I did. Jeff's personal experiences with navigating bipolar in the workplace were highly informative, and even if you don't necessarily work in a white-collar environment, his thoughts hold true for virtually any workplace. Remember, never be ashamed of who you are. Never be embarrassed to speak up for yourself. New technology and access to online mental health resources and apps is already actively changing the landscape of peer support communities. Just think of how the Twitter space's mental health community has exponentially grown over the last six months. Speaking of which, be sure to follow Bipolar Recorder on Twitter, at Bipolar Recorder so you can get show updates and even join in on our Twitter space, hashtag mental health chill zone conversations. They're just casual, unstructured audio chats about mental health, self-care strategies, peer support, just providing each other with positivity and good feedback and a safe space to share their stories. I am on Twitter at HHKeegan. Feel free to follow me if you'd like to. Jeff is on Twitter at TheBipolarist. And be sure to check out our social media presences, BipolarRecorder.com or Patreon.com, if you'd like to donate and help the show keep running. Plus, get some awesome merch. And if you don't have a few extra bucks at the moment, just tell your friends about Bipolar Recorder to help spread the word. Together, we will continue these important conversations surrounding serious mental illness and help educate the public and reduce social stigma. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful and safe day, evening, or night, wherever you are.
1: Bipolar Recorder is a listener supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting bipolarrecorder.com.
0: Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.